0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So my name is Jean Haley, and I'll be the uh, guest teacher tonight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the people that have been uh, murdered today in the shooting. Or was it last night? I don't know. I want to bring them into the room and honor them. Seems like we have to do this every week. So tonight, um, I'm going to talk about the Earth. Specifically, I'm going to talk about uh, the climate emergency. As I say that, you're probably thinking, "Oh no, I don't want to listen to this again." Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're not. Uh, So I just want to say a few words about why I am speaking about this. I'm not speaking because I'm an expert. I'm not. I'm speaking because I'm a human being, and it's something that's on my mind all the time. Or maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time. And I think it's something that needs to be on our mind most of the time. And this is the perfect place to be talking about it. If we can't talk about it here, where can we talk about it? It's a place where hopefully we feel free to say what's on our mind, to experience what's in our body minds, to share that, to get support. So I like to say I was, I was raised in the church of the rich white people, by which I mean uh, it was a very segregated place was mostly uh, mostly white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. The Catholics were the, on the other side of the, the tracks. There were no Jews, literally no Jews, in this town that I lived in. And, and the only people of color were the people who came and worked for the white people. And I always had the sense that this was a place, this church that I went to, and I'm not saying all churches are like this, but this church was a place where people went on Sunday to feel better. And I don't think that's always the role of spiritual communities. So, hopefully not. So, I don't want this place to be that place. And so, I'm going to talk about something that's painful, really. And and I'm talking about it because it's the opportunity for us to experience it viscerally, to be present with it. So, I'm going to pause throughout so we can notice what's present, and then maybe we can have a discussion at the end, I hope so. So if you want to get up and leave, that's okay. I won't be insulted. So actually I'm calling this um, talk Smokey the Bear, and I have a picture of Smokey back here. Does everyone know who Smokey the Bear is? Okay, yes? Um, Smokey's one of my faves. Actually, next to Smoky is somebody called Jetsuma Tenzin Pamo, who's a uh, British woman who's a Tibetan nun. She spent 16 years in a cave in the Himalayas by herself, living with nature. So I don't know. They're a good combo. I also had a picture of uh, Greta, uh, the... 16-year-old uh, climate activist, but I somehow it fell out of my bag, so I couldn't put her up there, too. But I'm going to talk about her. They're all kind of compatriots. So I'm going to talk, st- start talking a little bit about Smokey the Bear. He's going to be my metaphor. And um, so I was just backpacking in, um, in Wyoming outside of a place called Buffalo. Has anybody been to Buffalo? Yeah? Oh, you have. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so um, so it's just in Buffalo, and they have the Forest Service place there, and they have Smokey the Bear and a bunch of plastic stuff you can get. And I don't know why they've got that, but anyways, um, I always like to visit that, and I like to see Smokey, and so I wanted to uh, read the story about Smokey. If you don't know Smokey's story... Uh, although somebody told me recently that it was an anniversary and there was a lot of talk about Smokey so maybe you know this but anyways so Smokey the Bear was born in 1944 when the Forest Service decided that they needed some sort of um, symbol for their effort to promote forest fire prevention and so they hired this ad company that made this poster with this bear on it and um, the poster said care will prevent nine out of 10 fires. That sounds kind of boring, doesn't it? (laughs) That was the original slogan. And then in 1947, the slogan became, only you can prevent forest fires. I bet you all know that. So then things went along and in 1950, there was a fire in the the, uh, Captain Mountains of New Mexico. I was just in the mountains of New Mexico, near there actually. And the firefighters found a young bear cub hanging to a tree. And this bear was very badly injured. He was burned. And he had taken refuge in this tree. And uh, he was still alive, but he barely. And the firefighters were very moved by this. And they retrieved him. And uh, they named him Smokey. So he became the living symbol of Smokey the Bear. And news about this story spread throughout the country. It's a nice story. Unfortunately, they took him to a zoo. He went to the National Zoo in Washington. uh, And he lived there as the living symbol of Smokey the Bear. He lived there uh, until he died in 1976. So he lived quite a while. And then his remains were returned to Captain New Mexico where he's buried in the State Historical Park. So I want to make a pilgrimage out there his remains. So that's Smokey the Bear. And um, when I read this story, I I thought it was kind of like a mini Dharma talk. So it included uh, teachings on the importance of taking refuge. Smokey took refuge in that tree. On the importance of skillful action. The firefighters took action. Compassion. The firefighters were compassionate. Equanimity. And also the reality of a, of a burning world. And the world is burning, as I'm sure you're aware. So there are fires in Alaska, there are fires in the Amazon, there are fires across the United States. And uh, the world was burning when Smokey was alive, and it was burning during the time of the Buddha, and it's burning now. And it's burning literally from the effects of climate change, and it's uh, burning figuratively from greed, anger, and delusion. And in fact, the Buddha talks about that. As you may know, he uses the, the metaphor of fire a lot. I like to think it's because he lived in a very hot country, but that might have been part of it. But uh, So there's something called the fire sermon in which he talks about this. And uh, actually, I always read my Dharma talks to my partner, and then he gives me feedback, and he said... What's all that stuff about eye consciousness? So I took that out. I edited that out of the fire sermon where he talks about actually the senses. But you'll get the drift. So it starts out, Biku. So a Biku, if you don't know, is a is a monastic, a monk. Bhikkhus, all is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pain, with grief, with despairs. There's a later sutra, it's in the Mahayana tradition, the Lotus Sutra, maybe you know that, and that also picks up the theme of the burning house, and in this sutra, um, there's a a father, a kind father, whose uh, house catches on fire with his children inside of it. And his children want to stay inside playing with their toys. So he tells them to get them out of the house. He tells them that he has three carts outside. One is pulled by a sheep, one is pulled by a deer, and one by an ox. And so he promises that if his children come out that they can um, ride these carts um, but when they get out there's actually just one cart which is drawn by an ox. So the ox shows up a lot in different uh, story, Buddhist stories. It represents the Dharma. And um, so the Buddha explains that this burning house is samsara or this cycle of suffering that we're in. And um, the, the realm of rebirth, and that the children represent all of us, all sentient beings who are so absorbed with our toys um, that we ignore the dangers around us. And so um, knowing that humans are that way, he, um, they needed to be lured out kind of by these, um, in this case, ox carts but or carts, but it could be anything. He needed to lure them out. He needed to find teachings that would kind of suit the particular beings, and then when they were out, he uh, taught them the Dharma through this one, this one vehicle, the ox cart. So that was his skillful method. And um, interestingly enough, this, or not so, the the same metaphor was used by Greta. Thunberg, I guess that's how you pronounce her name, maybe you know, who's this um, 16-year-old Swedish activist. Does everybody know about Greta? So Greta is this young woman who's been um, holding these climate strikes in Sweden, and she passes out notes to passers-by saying, please consider how you live. And she's just arrived in the United States. Uh, She uh, refused to fly, so she took a boat, a sailboat, and she's here for a climate conference in New York. So she delivered, a, she delivered a speech to the Davos Economic Forum, these really rich people, talking about economics. And here's a 16-year-old speaking to them. And I'll just read you a few of her remarks, not the whole thing. And she starts out, just as the Buddha, our house is on fire. I am here to say our house is on fire. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. So I'll take a moment here just to pause. So just notice what you notice as you hear those words. We are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. In that time, unprecedented changes in all aspects of society need to have taken place, including a reduction of our CO2 emissions by at least 50%. It's in 12 years, and that's optimistic. And please note that those numbers do not include the aspect of equity, which is absolutely necessary to make the Paris Agreement work on a global scale. Nor does it include tipping points or feedback loops like the extremely powerful methane gas released from the thawing Arctic permafrost. So take a breath and notice what's present. We are facing a disaster of unspoken suffering for enormous amounts of people. And now is not the time for speaking politely or focusing on what we can or cannot say. Now is the time to speak clearly. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I fear every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as you would in a crisis I want you to act as if our house is on fire, because it is. So that's Greta. She's written several books, one of which is called Our House is on Fire. So the truth of these teachings, both the Buddhas and Greta's, is inescapable. The world is, in fact, burning, both literally and figuratively, fueled by greed, anger, and delusion. I mean, it is so true, greed, anger, and delusion. And faced with the enormity of this problem, it's very tempting to try to distract ourselves, to play with our toys in a burning house, rather than to confront the painful truth. We probably all do it. I do. The possibility of extinction is a lot to take in. It requires among other things community, practice, and compassion. All of which we touch when we come to a place to practice together like this. The Buddha, including all awakened beings, so the Buddha was the Buddha means the awakened one. He has not been the only one. The Buddha includes all awakened beings. I think of Greta as being awakened. The Dharma, the teachings about the truth, the way things are, and the Sangha or the communities like these, these can be our refuge, our support. We don't have to cling to a tree like Smokey waiting for someone to rescue us. We can be in community. We can take refuge in the teachings. We can take refuge in community. And we can find refuge so that we can engage in skillful action so that we can face the crisis. So there's a man named Yanni Postolnik, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. He's a British Dharma teacher And he was just recently at IMS, and he gave a talk entitled Love in the Time of Extinction. So he's a member of the uh, Extinction Rebellion Group, if you know them. They're a group that exists. They're very active in the U.K. They're also active across Europe, not so much here. And their thing is um, civil disobedience. And um, so they do things like Yanni himself glued his hands to a building. I think it was a building associated with fossil fuel. And he was there for days. He had to have people scratch his nose for him and whatever. And um, he said that actually going on meditation retreats or just the practice of meditation itself is great preparation for civil disobedience. And being on a retreat is a great preparation for being in a tiny jail cell. They're really not that different. So He felt that he had good preparation in his practice for being arrested for civil disobedience. So that's refuge. And another important ingredient in our ability to face this truth is compassion. Compassion, by definition, means turning a caring heart to the suffering of ourselves or another. It means, you no, know, it doesn't mean running away. It means turning towards and doing so with a caring heart. And this turning towards, I mean, that is the path, right? We are turning towards our experience. We're turning towards the truth, the reality of how things are. That's the first noble truth. The first noble truth. There is suffering, suffering is to be understood. So we turn towards it, we feel it, we experience it in the body. And then when we do that, then we can act. And sometimes the enormity of the suffering or the pain, at least for me, uh, it can overwhelm our capacity to stay with it, to be mindful of it, to experience it. And in that case, then we also need to use skillful means and we need to move away from it. And that also is a part of the path. We can only be present to the extent that we're not overwhelmed. If we're overwhelmed, then that's not helpful. So we need to take care of ourselves in this work. And we need to understand that not turning towards the truth head-on can be a useful protective strategy until we have the internal resources to do that. And also the external, the support to do that from others. But that's not a long-term strategy for our own well-being or for that of the earth. Eventually a news report or a photograph will slip by our defenses and it'll touch us where we're vulnerable. And then we can either fall into despair or dissociate or whatever we do or we can have our hearts broken open. And that was my experience just a few days ago. So I've been kind of walking around in a fog for, I would say, a year at least, feeling very um, ill at ease. And as a result of this experience a few days ago, which I'll describe in a moment, I realized it was because I was protecting myself. I hadn't let my heart break and it was it was the experience of talking to the daughter of a friend who was sharing with me that she she wondered if she should have brought her children into this world, a world that's on the brink of environmental disaster. And I thought that was amazingly courageous and honest of her to admit this, that she wondered if she should have brought her beloved children into this world. And it just broke open my heart. It was somehow her her vulnerability was so heartbreaking that all of that dis ease fell away and it was like, oh, okay, now I'm ready to do something. It took that for me to get some clarity about what I might need to do next. And that's often the way it is. You know, compassion and wisdom are considered to be the two wings of the path. And some of us are kind of wisdom people, and then compassion comes in later, and other, others of us are compassion, and then wisdom comes. I would say I'm mostly a compassion person, but I had protected myself from that. So when I had my heart broken open, it was like, oh, okay, I'm ready to do something. I'm probably not ready to glue my hand to a building that's beyond my capacity right now, but I was really ready to make some very firm commitments to myself. I was not gonna buy, cop. this sounds so minor, but for me it was just so clear. I was not gonna buy anything in a disposable container. If I didn't bring my own container, I wasn't gonna get it. I was not gonna buy anything on Amazon I'm not going to buy stuff I don't need, which I do all the time. And I'm, I'm going to begin to limit and maybe eliminate my plane travel. We'll see. So these are very small steps, but but it was such a relief to actually say, okay, I can I can start here. And it was the fact that my heart was broken open that allowed it. So this is kind of the marriage of compassion and wisdom that's taught by the Buddha. And um, it allowed me to engage in skillful action just as the firefighters' compassion for Smokey, little Smokey hanging to the tree, allowed them to engage in skillful action. So I'll take a break here and we'll take a breath. So there's a man named Ken Jones. He's also British. He's a writer on social activism, social justice, and Buddhism. And he says, compassion is the everyday face of wisdom. In individual spiritual practice, though, some will incline to a way of compassion and others to a way of wisdom. But finally, the two faculties need to be balanced, each complementing and ripening one another. So for some of us, so this story, I'm a mother, it was something about hearing this mother's story that just broke me open. For some of us, it it might be the arts. We might see a representation of something that really cracks open our hearts. And so um, I want to read a poem. This is a form of art by uh, somebody named Davrick Leggett. Daverick Leggett is a Qigong teacher, and he's a climate activist, also a member of Extinction Rebellion. And this is a hard poem to listen to and a hard poem to read. We'll see if I can do it. Uh, so I'm going to pause throughout it. I would just invite you to notice, again, what your experience is, to make room for your experience, to offer yourself compassion, in whatever way makes sense. You could place a hand on your heart or whatever. And just to be with whatever is present. So it's called The Good Ancestor. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. And feeling me near, she turns, sad-eyed and heavy with grief. What was it like, she says, when the great whales swam? When the birds sang you awake? When the rains came soft and the soil smelt sweet underfoot? What was it like? and the blessings catch in my throat. On darker days she turns, her famished face charred, and eyes sunk in their bony orbits, burn with curses. And the blessings froth at my mouth with the poisonous spume of betrayal. On the darkest of all days, I walk the hundred years and find no one there. Let today be the bright day. Let today be the bright day. I lay my hand upon her back, and feeling me near, she turns and blesses me, saying, Your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor. Your love was fierce enough. This is dukkha and it's hard to bear. So to end, I'd like to say a few more words about this last quality that's so important in all of this. It was the quality that was exhibited by the firefighters who saved Smokey It's the quality of equanimity. Of not giving in. They did not give in to their own fears about their own safety, but they saw what needed to be done and they did it. So equanimity, as you may know, is the last of the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes or qualities of the awakened heart. And it's considered to be the uh, the foundation for the other three. So loving kindness, compassion, and appreciative joy. And it equanimity shows up everywhere in the teachings. It's not just in the Brahma Viharas. And it's really so, so essential for living in this world today. So equanimity is the English word that's translated from the Pali word upekka, which means to look over so it's the, it's the quality of having the broad view, which is why I actually started with the four elements meditation. Because for me, it helps me to have a broader view. I am of the earth. It's not just this self here. I'm connected to the earth. I'm connected to all of you. And equanimity also means letting go of attachment to outcome. So we don't know how it'll work or if it'll work, but we act out of compassion and love anyways. There's a lojong phrase, if anybody heard Tuari speak last Sunday, which was just knocked your socks off, mine anyways. Um, She talked about sitting in the closet reading the lojong slogans for two years. So the lojong slogans are Tibetan slogans. And one of them is something that says something like um, abandon all hope of fruition. Uh, Actually, in the context of the Lojong slogans, it means, you know, watch out for having a goal about what your meditation is going to do. But it could also be a description of equanimity. So we let go of any sort of expectation that what we're doing is going to have a certain outcome and we do it anyways. We do it out of love and compassion. So Greg Greg Scharf is one of my favorite Dharma teachers. He used to be head of the Raptor Center in San Francisco, and then he became a Dharma teacher. He's very connected to the natural world. And he says, true equanimity is based on radical intimacy with our lives and the truth of the way things are. We are connected to our experience but not pulled around by our reactive minds. As it becomes stronger, it frees us to respond with balance and wisdom. So equanimity can be a hard thing to come by, I think when faced with the enormity of the climate crisis, the enormity of the suffering in the world. But we've already, we're already practicing it every time we sit down on the cushion and we don't get up screaming and say, I can't do this anymore. You know, Every time we're practicing, we're developing the muscle of equanimity, our capacity to be equanimous. So Greg also says that there are additional supports for equanimity in addition to the practice of meditation. And these are things like leading a life of integrity, a life that is in accord with our values. Intentionally reflecting on our own and others' good qualities. So if you're like me, you can get pulled into the rabbit hole of everything is so dark and I forget about the good stuff. So we make it part of our practice to reflect on what's good in the world in ourselves and in others. The third is understanding on an experiential level the truth of change in our own lives and also in the lives of others. So change is happening all the time. We don't really know what will happen in the future. We have some hints, but we really don't know. We do know that things will change. And the last one is, you know, the teachings of karma, understanding that people are responsible for their own decisions, no matter how much we might wish we could alleviate their suffering. So we're all responsible. The last line in the four reflections, which I or is it five, that I repeat every morning. So the last line has to do with karma, and it says, We are the air to our karma board of our karma owner of our car- karma and dependent on our karma or actions all of our actions whether for good or for ill of these we will be the heir so as we face this crisis together all of us in this room all of us human beings i wish us all the solace of refuge Refuge of a place like this, of refuge of the practice, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The support of compassion, compassion for ourselves and for one another. The courage and the equanimity to take skillful action. And also the strength of equanimity. So I'll end with a quote from the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., Never, never be afraid to do what's right, especially if the well-being of a person or animal is at stake. Society's punishments are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. So thank you for your kind attention, and I would welcome and invite a conversation whatever you noticed as I was speaking any wisdom you have hi I'm Kathleen Um, Jean thank you for talking about this topic it's really important and I think a lot of times we go through our life and we don't think about it because we're not affected directly um And I have the luxury of being semi-retired, so I work on climate issues. But I think you talked about personal choices that you're making. A lot of us make personal choices that support a healthy climate. But I also think the reality is that we have a lot of power as citizens. And whether we go to a protest or whether we contact our legislators or who we vote for, those things make a huge difference. And we should realize that we have that power.
1: When you mentioned what it was, um, I think I, I groaned or moaned, and hopefully it wasn't too loud. I thought, "Oh no, um, I came here to get away from that that thinking." And then all of a sudden, I realized what I was thinking and realized how important it was to be here. And I, uh, I think I've had my heart broke tonight in your stories. And thank you very much. And it feels um, better going forward because I really felt stuck with everything. Like a Paul had been over uh, my life for the last year. So thank you very much for allowing me to
2: have my heart broken.
3: Um, Hi, I'm Joey. Um... I wonder if you have any advice on, um, I don't know, allowing your heart to uh, be broken. Because I think, um, like uh, you just said, um, I've been living sort of closed off and um, willingly apathetic for a long time. And um, coming to uh, things like this here at Common Ground is a pretty new occurrence for me. Um, So I'm kind of uh, inching my way out. So I wonder if you have any advice about... um, letting your heart be broken.
0: I think our hearts all break in different ways. There are different things that touch us. Because I'm a mother, the story of a mother with her children broke my heart. You may have other sensitivities. I don't know what they are, but for me, um, for me it has to have a personal element to it. So I think just looking at the news every day, looking at the photographs, has overwhelmed my capacity to be present with that. It was on such a huge scale that I needed to to come to a more personal level, um, to hear some personal stories that I could relate to of uh, someone whose life has been deeply affected by the climate emergency. So that's almost always been my experience, is uh, interacting with another human being one-on-one who shares something that resonates with me. That's my experience. Maybe others have other experiences of having their heart broken. When it's so big, it's hard for me to hold personally. Anybody else want to comment
3: on that? I didn't press anything.
0: Oh, okay. Hi, my name is Susanna, and I really—I've been trying to at, for the last year or two, occasionally read, wanting to get into some action, and I've been so overwhelmed by the enormity of it, the difficulty, and also, and particularly, I was thinking, well. There's lots of things that aren't properly understood if I write about them, get into them. But then I read, don't even worry, because those who don't believe, it's not rationality. So I've been at a total loss. I would like to do something. I just feel it's so big, I don't even know where to go, where to start. So if anybody has any good vibes on that, I'd be happy.
1: Hi, my name's Greg um it is a huge problem that I'm huge it's an understatement. I mean it just it is overwhelming um, and I'm only one person but uh, to me it, it I come back to what can I do right now and and to ask that question uh, without judging whatever it is I think I can do without, as, as we said during your talk, without owning the outcome. Um, I care about my kids. I care about who comes after me. And so I'm willing to do what I think I can do right now, and maybe tomorrow I can do even more. Um, but I don't... I, I, I'm not tasked with solving this whole thing. I, I just, you know... But I hear the call... And I just ask myself, what can I do? And then I do it. And that's about all you can hope for (laughs) day in and day out.
2: Uh, My name's Michelle. Um, uh, I use they, them pronouns. And, uh, yeah, thank you for talking about this. I'm basically... I uh, have been a climate justice activist for 10, 12 more years, um, and more or less I'm trying and like, uh, maybe even like, yeah, as living, and um, I don't know, there's, a, I have, it's helpful to hear um, the perspective from from like a Dharma perspective, and I think that's um, yeah. I have I don't know just responses in a couple of different levels, and I'm probably going to get emotional. But um, yeah, no, I mean I think that it is really useful too. I think like because if you're you know, like thinking about it all the time, then there is very much like a um a tendency to like block block yourself off from the heartbreaking part of it and so just like a reminder to come back to that and to come back to the grief and to feel it I think is really important as well as um I was feeling a lot of both grief and then also like rage and like wanting to like scream and so forth which is probably also a good thing to do maybe later or whatever um I find it also a meditative practice, just screaming sometimes. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's, you know, obviously there's analysis that, I mean, I'm coming uh, to a lot of this from, like, kind of a anti-capitalist and anti-systemic lens, and I think from that perspective, it's easy to, like, um, say, you know, obviously there are choices, and it's uh, you need things that are more on a systemic level than an individual level a lot of the time, and it's not helpful to like shame people or feel feel the shame in your own self. And at the same time, like when like it's kind of an opportunity um, to feel the pain and also um, feel a little bit of relief when you actually do think about being consequential about that step, um, which is interesting. And so I was just having kind of that general thoughts on that level. And then I was having thoughts, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, one thing I just forgot. And then, um, just some, a couple things that are coming up that people might want to know about specifically on the topic of fire. Um, there's going to be a pretty low key, um, action uh, at MIA this Thursday at 6 against Cargill around the Amazon fires. Um, They're obviously based here in the Twin City and are one of the primary uh, kind of supporters of the Bolsonaro regime, and the fires are not just about, you know, they're intentionally set by uh, farmers and ranchers and miners, and it's not just about a... um, Uh, yeah they're not accidental it's a project of like indigenous extermination um, and theft so it's obviously connecting to a lot of uh, other types of issues Um, and so I think one thing that's also helpful I I think um, that I think when I hear kind of the uh, Extinction Rebellion kind of perspective which I think is also helpful but um, there's Um, I've just heard from a lot of Indigenous people when they're talking about uh, the um, climate issue that, like, you know, the crisis has been here for, you know, 500 years and more, and all, like, all of the things that, like, uh, you know, white people are really afraid of, um, like, the decimation of societies and ecological collapse have already happened, um, to a lot of people in this world. And so, um, and, and I've learned how to survive and uh, be together in that, um, and learn and pass on tradition. And so there's also some, there's like a lot of resilience and hope in that, um, and kind of shifting the perspective, um, because yeah, people always keep going on or, you know, even if, you know, people die the world will keep going. There's that, too. But, um, yeah, I don't want to take too much time. sorry. But, yeah. Maybe
0: people can consult with you afterwards. Yeah, yeah.
2: maybe. So, yeah, so that Mm -hmm. uh, action and then I think just a couple of groups. There is a local Extinction Rebellion group. There's 350 group. um, 350 St. Paul is good. Um, There's a lot of uh, possibilities to go into Lime 3 stuff that I could tell you about. There's a couple larger actions coming up, um, things Thank like
0: you. that. So, Thank you. you a resource person. Thank you.
4: My name is Alyssa, um, and I just wanted to comment on the um, letting your heart be broken open. Um, I think that um, the Metta practice, the loving kindness practice, um, I think there might be a, a group that sits here specifically for that or an occasional opportunity. Um, but just is a good one. So, um, kind of like at the end of a sit, like showing love to your, to yourself and then to somebody who's easy to love. So, and it's, it's just with closing your eyes and reflecting. So it doesn't have to be, it's what you're doing personally. So it's like showing love to yourself, sending love to somebody who's easy for you to love. And then kind of expanding outward, sending love to somebody who's maybe hard to love that you don't want to love and so forth. There's other people who can have more practice that could articulate it. But I think that that's that's one. And then I find myself sometimes doing that when I'm not feeling very loving or just not really feeling um, anything in particular. And so I just think that um, subtle experience of uh, intentionally trying to focus on your heart, my heart, um, can put me in a different space. And then uh, also just practicing that and just having, um, I don't have any mastery over having a regular sit, but the more that I do have an intentional sit in meditation, sitting through different feelings of joy. Discomfort, pain, good ideas that I forget, fleeting thoughts, um, all the different range of emotions um, make it a little bit easier than when I'm off my cushion to practice that in life as well. So then, confronting, experiencing uncomfortable emotions on um, day-to-day living, I. I sometimes without having to really practice, it can draw within my own strength that I'm learning and, um, you know, and then also finding, um, like actually studying and understanding a little bit of the Buddhist teachings intellectually helps me make new choices and maybe even like confront, uh, or articulate, uh, what I need, what I feel needs to be said in a difficult situation. And that can be very heartbreaking heartbreaking, and heart opening um, as well, because it's just experiencing myself in a new situation and sometimes having it go well and sometimes not. Um, and then just living with that, you know, and, and, and observing that and then um, trying to be a little quiet too, to just have that reflection as well as I think some time in nature can be heartbreaking you know and opening just like a just a new i think just experiencing myself in new situations allows me to learn different facets of myself and um hopefully be like a more open-hearted person towards myself and others
3: hi my name is nathan um I have a lot of thoughts in my head at the moment, like I'm sure many of us do. So, uh, I, these aren't fully formed thoughts exactly, but I, I do just want to share um, what's most on my mind at the moment, and, and it's, it's an encouragement, I think, for, to everyone maybe um, to to take refuge in, in in the immensity of the problem. Uh, I think it's easy to be overwhelmed, especially when we take it all personally on our on our shoulders. It's it's impossible for any of us to hold uh, the level of appropriate rage and the level of appropriate guilt um, to to interact with with the scale of the problem. And I think that's why so many of us shut down because uh, it's just impossible to carry. Um, and, and to to consider you know what what would be the appropriate action or reaction to to something that's so immense. but I think we can also take refuge in, in that immensity um, and and draw energy from it for for the actions that are necessary. Um, I, I read a, an article recently about uh, how uh, the the anthropocene, the the human age, it will not even be an epoch, like geologically speaking, we, we won't even be able to see, we'll barely be able, if if there were some, you know, future geologists to, to study our, our era, uh, we'd barely be an era, geologically speaking, we, we wouldn't even be able to, you wouldn't be able to even find us in the sediment layer. um, When you look at, at the, just the immensity of, of the evolution of life on this planet, and, and I don't mean to trivialize the situation and I don't mean to trivialize anyone's guilt or um, feelings of grief i've I've felt my fair share of, of grief for the for the climate um collapse as well and 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 I don't think that's really the the point the point is not to say that it doesn't matter I think the point is to for me it's it's the reverence I have for life um that i that I'm able to experience in in this body that we all are and and it, um and I think to understand as well that that life is tenacious and life is adapting and life is constantly changing and we don't know exactly how or why or what that will look like. I think to me, I I, I find um, I find like truth and and hope in that, and and I think about it in the in terms of like tending plants. So you know you can look now with our our modern age. We can see pictures of of dying plants, dying ecosystem, dying dying things across the world, and we so want to water it and do what we can to tend it. And but it's impossible. You know, we can't. We can send money maybe for someone to water those plants. Metaf- I'm speaking metaphorically, um, but ultimately the best thing that we can do is is tend what is immediately around us. And I, and I mean that in the sense too of of you know if like watering plants metaphorically is just loving each other, uh, as radically and, and hopelessly as, as we can. I think, uh, to me that, that is where I find refuge is, is knowing that, that careful tending, that compassionate tending of, of people around us, um, is, is the best thing that we can do. Uh, or or I try and come back to that you know, then then there's particular actions, you know, that, that stem from, from that place. But I think it, I, that my main point is that, that if we, if we're motivated by despair or motivated by fear, those emotions burn too hot and too fast. And, and I I know what it's like to lose oneself in, in those feelings. And so I think they're, they're absolutely um, relevant and important and they're, it's important to, to feel them and allow ourselves to feel them and allow our hearts to be broken open so that we can feel them but but being driven by that I think is not necessarily sustainable and and for me then the response is to come back to that sort of the the, the peace in my mind of the of the immensity of of the situation and then knowing too that that as someone else already mentioned that really my only ability not even, just my only responsibility but my only ability that I, I can have in this physical body is to look around me who's around me what you know plants or in the hearts I can I can tend
0: I think we're going to have to end here I just wanted to dedicate the merit before we we end with the announcements so if you want to come back into a comfortable seated posture Just settling back into this body and this breath, noticing what's present in this moment, and acknowledging that the practice that we do together. whatever skillful actions result, our good intentions, all of these are for the benefit not only of ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings and for this planet. So dedicating whatever merit or whatever good may come from our practice together, from our discussion, from our reflection, dedicating that to the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. May all beings everywhere know peace. This talk, like
4: all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website,